Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, co-founder of Accidental Gods, that place on the net where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. My guest this week combines all of these. Alnur Lada is an activist, a regenerative farmer, a visionary, and a writer whose work focuses on the intersection where political organising meets system thinking, meets structural change, and they all combine to help change the narrative of our times. In 2012, Alnur helped to found The Rules, which was a global network of activists, organisers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, all focused on changing the rules that create inequality, poverty and climate change. As you'll hear, that was a deliberately time-limited project. When it wound itself down, Alnur moved from his birthplace of Canada to co-found Tierra Valiente, an alternative community and healing centre in the jungle of northern Costa Rica. While living there, he's a board member of Culture Hack and the Emergence Network, and he has an MSc in Philosophy and Public Policy from the London School of Economics. He is one of the brightest stars in the progressive firmament, and it feels really good that he's our first guest of 2021, an absolutely inspiring way to start the year. So people of the podcast, please welcome Alnur Lada. So Alnur Lada, welcome to Accidental Gods, and thank you for checking in all the way from Costa Rica. It sounds, I have to say, totally glorious, the little bits I understand of where you live. Can you tell us a tiny bit about the community that you're in? Sure, of course. And thank you for having me, Amanda. And I've been listening to uh, a lot of the podcasts from Accidental God. So it's uh, it's an honor and, and pleasure to be to be on with you. you. Um, so I live in the, the northwest jungle of Costa Rica, about three hours from San Jose. I, I live in a community called Tierra Valiente, which means brave earth. It was founded by about 25 friends, a mix between Costa Ricans and, and international people uh, who wanted to be in an experiment of, of building a, a post-capitalist alternative. And so we, we bought this land, um, it's about 87 acres, and we put it into a trust, and so nobody owns it. And we set up a, a, a healing arts center uh, that's run as a cooperative, and we have a biodynamic, regenerative, organic farm. Wow. And that's also uh, run as a cooperative, and there's a there's a neighboring eco lodge which we are actually part of. So some of our space is part of that inventory, and and all the profit goes into a shared pool, which is decided by direct democracy and cooperative governance. And we have no distinction between labor and capital. So if somebody was part of this original twenty five person group who who put in funds or works on the land as a as a farmer or a, a chef or part of the cleaning staff or maintenance or what have you, they they share in that profit pool as well. And so we're we're in the very early days, and you know it's very much uh, an experiment, and it's by no means do we see it as the solution or the alternative to to really anything. It's more about um, how do we live consistently with with our principles while being implicated in this totalitarian neoliberal system, you know, that we're all entangled in. Yes. And, and and that was more the reason to do it for us, really. And it also, it came at an interesting time. It was about halfway through the rules, um, which was a project, a kind of time-bound experiment that many of us who are part of the core of Terra Valiente, we met through that process. And we were trying to understand the root causes of inequality, poverty, climate change. And we were running this global activist collective and we started saying to ourselves, you know, yeah, it's important to, to to fight the existing system, you know, to remove the noose of capitalism from from the neck of 99% of humanity. And at the same time, we, we have to build the alternatives and live it. And so that was that's the kind of challenge we, and the contradiction we live is like the resistance and the renewal. Yes. So that you are, in effect, living the three pillars of Joanna Macy's Pillars of the Great Turning. You've got the, the holding actions... In, or at least you had with the roots, the holding actions of trying to understand and then hold back the noose of capitalism. But you've also got the systems design and the shifting consciousness that were the other two pillars in Tierra Valiente 
from from the sound of things, which is very inspiring. Every time I listen to you, I think, okay, I'm going to swim to Costa Rica. It will be fine. And stay there forever. <laughs> so before we move into the very, very fertile ground that that opens up, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Because you sound North American, but your antecedents are, are more in the Middle East. Yeah, I grew up in Vancouver. I was socialized by Canadians. And my, my parents are from East Africa. Uh, my mom and her family are from Zanzibar and Tanzania. My dad is from Uganda. They, they come from a similar migratory path, slightly different routes, but they were Arabs who moved to Egypt, who migrated to Persia, went through India and into East Africa. And so it's a, yeah, our, our, our particular tribe. In some ways, I guess, they're, they're considered the Jews of Islam, which is sometimes said in a derogatory way and sometimes it's said in an aspirational way, which is, which is funny. Uh, but they were in exile and um, persecution for, for most of their existence. Because of the belief system that they held. You know, it was a, it was a mix between where their political alliances uh, lay. So they were followers of Fatima, uh, the prophet's daughter, and so they were they were the caliphs of Egypt during the Fatimid period. Hmm. And so that triggered a lot of resent internally within Islam. You know, there were there was at the time at least the three major warring caliphs, uh, the Fatimids in in Cairo, the Abbasids in Baghdad, and then there was also a, a Syrian caliph, you know, later in Al-Andalusia. And then there was the traditional seat of power in Mecca. And so there was a lot of interfighting, mm-hmm. let's say, between between the different tribes. And the, the Ismailis were seen as pluralists and very progressive. You know, they, they, they sort of brought this golden period of Egypt, uh, where Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians and um, pagans and others lived harmoniously and they, they had a wisdom school, tree school, and were, you know, translating texts of everyone from Aristotle and Plato and Socrates in the Western tradition to the sort of Persian heretics of the time. And so they were considered a danger, a, a dangerous ally, let's say, in, in, in the Islamic world. Um, and then after the, the, during the Crusades, the Seljuks made an alliance with, with the Christian crusaders and, and sacked Cairo. And so then they went into hiding in, in, in Persia. And so this is kind of their story. They, they go into hiding. This is where they got the label, the, the Hashasin, right. uh, which is where the word assassins comes from. Oh um, and then they, they sort of come down, they integrate into society, and then they have a falling out, you know. Five, six hundred years of, of being peripatetic and being slightly outcast before you come to Vancouver? Mm-hmm. Probably no, longer than that uh, in, in our line since... Uh, um, in, in some ways, since the founding of Islam. Wow. Okay. In many ways, the lore is that when Muhammad comes down from the mountain uh, after his 40 days, you know, he integrates Sufism, which were the, and Sufis at the time were the desert mystics, pre-Islamic mystics, into, into Islam. And you know, this is where the order of the bench and the walis come from and the, these sort of structures. And so it was those original Sufis that followed the uh, Ali and Fatima in, in, when the Sunni-Shia split happened, and then uh, sort of come to Cairo to establish the, the Fatima dynasty. Right. And so, yeah, in some ways, it's like a, a 1,500-year kind of journey. You know, and in other ways, it's also very modern. It's very new, right? It's, it's, mm. it, it's sort of the, the there, there is no purity of blood, right? There was sort of uh, mergers and intermarriages and yeah. conversion all throughout the story, right? And, you know, even my uh, leading up to 1972, you know, my, my dad gets exiled from Uganda by Idi Amin, and ends up in a refugee camp outside of Vienna in Austria, Gosh. and then randomly gets shipped to, to Vancouver one day, you know, by a UN program. Wow. And so the deep levels of entanglement in all of this with modernity and, and trade and commerce and, you know, the relational field, it's all there, right? And in some ways, it's all there for all of us all the time. Right, it's just that yeah, I have the privilege of having an oral tradition that passed these things down. But in, in in some ways, it sounds exotic, and in other ways, it's quite ordinary. Actually, in the we we all had a thousand generations of people who came before us who lived largely uh, miserable lives, yeah. trying to keep body and soul together and trying to maintain their their the the beliefs that kept them sane in insane and fast moving world that was moving towards where we are now, right, which is which is late-stage capitalism, right, that sort of relentless arrow of quote-unquote progress 
that's led us to this moment of, of psychosis and collapse. It's been moving that way for all of us. We just have different migratory journeys of getting there. Yes. And you have, from the sound of things, a really powerful intellectual background that questions the status quo and has been questioning the status quo for a very long time, which I'm guessing, partly because I've been reading your writings and I will put links to them in the show notes. And there's some of the most perspicacious, deep and thoughtful critiques of late stage capitalism that I've come across. And I've spent the last four years exploring this. And so I was very curious as to how you came to be the person that you are that has the breadth of understanding and the ability to really look at the structures in which we swim and notice the things that are broken. I think it, I've read so much in the last few days, but I think it was in the Wetico paper. You had a quote about, I don't know who discovered the water, but I'll bet it wasn't the goldfish. And so many of us swim within the structures of late stage capitalism to the point where they feel like the way the world is. And it takes somebody who has the capacity to take a step back from that to show us how we can begin to dismantle it. I think, which you seem to have done. So, taking a step forward, you're now in Costa Rica, in what I will say again sounds like an idyllic and utterly radical lifestyle. So, you wrote the papers that drew me to you, particularly the paper on the Wetico, and I'd really like to begin to look into those, but just for a moment, let's look at how you got to be the person who wrote those. So you went to university in Vancouver, I'm guessing? Yeah. So it's such an interesting thing, right, when we go into personal story, because I'm I'm such a big believer in, like, identity is the problem. Okay. I think just the thing to say is, like, in some ways it's easier for me. It's actually, like, in some ways much easier for somebody who's other, right? So growing up as uh, with my background in a very white Canadian urban environment, right, it was, like, really easy for me to look around and be like, this is not... Mm. Uh, this does not seem like a healthy, sane way to progress. And I was also lucky that I had immigrant parents who had not fully drank in the Kool-Aid. When I wanted to go play hockey, my dad it was just like, why would you want to ice skate in the cold and, you know, be in violent contact with other children? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And so we had a bit of that sort of like critical uh distance let's say for sure and and i think having a mom that was like deep mystic who so my mom took a vow to the order when she was seven uh, to to meditate every day from four to six in the morning her entire life and so seeing that level of sort of commitment and devotion and discipline in a culture where nobody seemed to be really devotionally doing anything you know everyone was kind of working jobs they didn't want to work and raising children they didn't seem to like very much I, I had this very contrasted experience of this very devotional mother you know who was in love with the divine and I had an uncle my, my parents separated early and and I, I was raised by my uncle who who was a mystic and a philosopher and taught at McGill and would come over for his summers mm. He, he would help contextualize things for us. And, and I think that's really the, the kind of key to get out of the current system is just somebody describing, you know, in the Marshall McLuhan quote, uh, what the water's texture is, yeah. right? And uh, how we got to be in this particular stream. And, you know, all, he sort of provided that role where, where my mom was showing me just like pure embodiment. Uh, my uncle was giving me more of that sort of pedagogical, you know, like what the Germans would call like the, the geist of it. Right. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the rules, the time-limited construct that you were in before you got to Tierra Valiente. So we started the rules in 2011, actually, informally, kind of during the Occupy moment. And there, there were seeds of it before then. And I was in New York at the time and, and Occupy happens and redirected our energy very strongly for the first few months. And then, I guess, tentatively, till now, really, a lot of the relational tissue from some of the initial people we met is still there and still intact. We were kind of working informally when we set up the rules and, and we had both like a, a think tank arm that was trying to get more progressive and radical ideas into the mainstream right. and make them feel like common sense. But then also working directly with social movements, largely peasant movements, farmer movements, indigenous movements, and trying to be in solidarity with what was happening in other places in the global south and elsewhere. And part of our understanding was like, look, we, we could do this as volunteer work, but the, the type of work we're doing, trying to bring like cognitive linguistics and memetics and 
neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists with activists and writers and farmers. Like it just that level of organizing and interdisciplinary work requires really full time attention. Mm. And so when we, we we said, okay, let's if we're going to set up a, an NGO structure, you know, and be a U.S. registered. 501c3 and all the drama and implications and bureaucracy that comes with let's do it for a short period of time let's just be really aware of the trappings of the not-for-profit industrial complex right. you know we don't want to be in the job creationism world this is not we're not creating this thing in order for us to have quote-unquote work we're not creating this thing to live in perpetuity and celebrate our own success like if we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of an ngo like something is you know direly wrong um, and so we, we sort of agreed initially on 10 years, and then we, we changed it down the line a couple of years later to eight years, which felt like a, a commitment to our time together in a particular configuration, learning to how to you know, work and play and make trouble together. But also, we, we were like, we have no idea what the world's going to be like in, in eight years, right? Like, and, and that was a big factor for us in the way we were thinking is just that the world is changing so rapidly let's be responsive to, to now and let's not think about long-term preservation. Let's just be open to emergence and what interesting configurations want to come out of this. And if we know we're going to close the official structure down, how do we become unemployable? And, and that, that was more of, our, more of our experiment of like, okay, we, we have this window of knowing we're going to exist in one way and there's some comfort in that. And, and that comfort also, it could bring a, a laziness. And so how do we create a context in which our time together uh, actually does the opposite and it sparks ideas and creativity? Because and, you take nothing for granted. Yeah. If it's ending, it feels, it's like when you give up a job. Exactly. I've noticed that the last couple of months are suddenly much sharper because you, this is the last time I'm going to be doing this and meeting this person. Totally. And we, we sort of had eight years of that. And in some ways, like a temporary, like, there's this concept of the temporary autonomous zone um, that came from Hakim Bey and you know was used at Burning Man and other places. But uh, we were playing with this idea of the temporary organizational zone. Right. It's not not that we're against the idea of organizing together, or even it's just that the the self perpetuation of the organization often supersedes any of the work you do. Yeah. And so it's so much more freeing and liberating to be in this temporary organizational zone. Because uh, every day is like your last day at work. You had, there's, we weren't like pandering to funders. We weren't, you know, it was, it was deeply liberating as, a, as, a, as an experience of working yeah. together. And have you taken that into Tierra Valiente? Is it also time limited? You know, it's different with a land project because, you know, in some ways it's the, the deepening relationship with this particular piece of land that creates the bond. In some ways it is a temporary configuration because not everyone who comes stays. There is more of a sort of dynamism. Yeah, I, I think there's something particular about work that mm. is deeply problematic, Yeah. right? Because so much of our identity gets entangled into work and what we do for a living and yep. the validation that gives us in the external world. And, and, and that's where all those ego battles happen. In, in a living project like this and, and sort of land-based work, there is something about being called to the land and having that individual relationship. So there are people who come that I don't necessarily want to live with when I first meet them. But I, I see the way the land holds them and how they're in dialogue with the land and that the land is actually calling them in and welcoming them. And as, as we sort of attune ourselves to these omens, it becomes like, okay, you know, we, we have to adhere to the desires of the land and the land clearly wants this person here. Right. It's almost like the configuration gets decided in our ability to be in verse and dialogue with this land that we're stewarding. Right. This is exactly, this is where Accidental Gods is heading, is to be at that point where you can ask of the whole web of life around you, but it is grounded in the land, what do you want of me, and then act on it. And you're there, and you're doing it. And that sense that the agency comes from the web of life, and the human consciousnesses within that are part of that dance, but are not necessarily leading the dance, feels very precious and very beautiful. And also, I know you're not intending it to be a model for everybody else, but my goodness, it does feel as if it could be. Anyway, we will come back to that again in a bit. Can we head now towards the Wetico paper, simply because I, I am still very struck by 
the nature of what it says. And I recognize that you wrote it, or it was published in 2016, so you probably wrote it in 2015. So it's a little out of date. But can you give us a précis of what that paper said? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, so this was the, the paper in Cosmos called Seeing Wetiko. So Wetiko is a is an indigenous First Nations concept from, from Turtle Island, from North America. And many different traditions had a version of it. And so the, the Cree word is Wetiko. And there's many other ways to say it, Wendigo, uh, Wedigo, etc. But the, the core of the Wetiko virus was that uh, it came initially from northern tribes, where one of the tribes members would... Uh, get stuck alone um, or, or with somebody else out in the wilderness, uh, had no choice but to eat human flesh. And then once they ate human flesh, they would say two things happened to them. They would have an icy heart forevermore from that, from that moment when that decision was made, even if it was for survival and uh, necessary, even if that person who died gave themselves to them. It, it didn't matter the context. Once that threshold is crossed, that threshold is crossed. And then the, the second was that they would have an unnatural appetite for more human flesh. Even when they came back into the community and were surrounded by abundance, the, the sort of virus would, would pull on them. And it was an entity. It was a being in and of itself. And it was uh, linguistically as a word not used very often. You know, it was very particular, as you can imagine. Um, and then the Western Europeans came and the settlers, the colonialists come to the Turtle Island and different tribes spontaneously interacting with them start using this descriptor right. and seeing their relationship with the natural world as cannibalistic seeing that the hierarchical relations that you know propped up like one house with, with all the slave labor uh, as cannibalistic and then it sort of like disappears from the lexicon for a long period of time and then there's a guy named jack d forbes who was one of the most brilliant uh, scholars of, of the 20th century he was um, a leader in the Mary Indian movement and for indigenous rights and in Alcatraz and sort of all these all these key moments. And he was a, a professor at the University of California. And he writes an amazing book called Columbus and Other Cannibals. I, I believe it was his last book. And he wrote like 60 books wow. and very, you know, some very academic. He was self-taught historian. And some of them were, you know, three, four or five hundred pages on this, the history of a certain tribe. And then he writes this very pop accessible book at the end of his life called Columbus and Other Cannibals, where he, he repopularizes this concept. And so we were, we were playing on that concept, uh, Martin Kirk, the, the co-author and I, and, and merging it with the idea of mimetics. Yes. And, and memes are like the cultural equivalent of genes. They're the base unit of an idea. So, you know, Wednesdays are a meme. You know, karate is a meme. Uh, Islam or Christianity are memes. But we use it, you know, in, in pop culture in this, I guess, pejorative way of like internet memes, like lolcats or something, right? And that's just one very narrow definition of it. It's really the base unit of uh, culture. Anything that is like an exchangeable idea, uh, the, especially ideas that are communicable, they go from one person to another, they, they sort of live within their host, they mutate, depending on the context. Those are uh, very accurately described as memes. So like one of the most popular memes in, in Western culture is the idea of the invisible hand, right? That if everyone just behaved really selfishly, somehow some perfect equilibrium is going to be created. And we, we know that's nonsense. And we've had, you know, 50 years of econometric data to show that that's utterly false. But the meme is so potent. It's so powerful. It's so, in mimetic terms, they would call it like a sticky virus that it still exists, right? It's taught in every economic one-on-one class to this day. Those are the types of sort of ideas we, we wanted to explore and how Wetiko is actually, in some ways, the hidden virus of Western civilization. It's always there. It's always in the background. It's actually the sort of dominant relationship we have with the natural world is essentially one of domination. These are resources for us to use for our pleasure, but it's never discussed. And so one of the key thoughts in meme theory is that by being aware of a meme complex, it has less power over you. And that's what we were trying to do with, with seeing what to go. So let's explore this, the concept of the meme and bring it into the Wetiko. So the Wetiko concept is of the icy heart and that once the threshold has been crossed, the appetite continues and probably grows. And also, as I understand it, it can spread from person to person. Mm -hmm. Even in the original Wetiko concept, it was that, that that iciness of heart and desire to eat human flesh was a communicable thing that had an energy, and I felt reading the article, 
but I want to check on this. It almost as if it has its own agency and that outside of its human hosts or inside of its human hosts, separate from its human hosts, it wants to replicate and to spread. Was I projecting that in or was that an inherent part of the initial concept? Yeah, no, it is. The the concept of meme becomes popular uh, in the West is through Richard Dawkins' book, The The Selfish Gene, he wrote in 1979. And and that that idea of the communicable aspect and the, the mutation aspect were, were sort of in that. The, the, the sort of more Neoplatonic uh, ideal, so you know, Plato said that the world of the formless is more real than the world of the form, mm-hmm. right? That there's this ideal world. Uh, so if I imagine the, the perfect sphere, any sphere I see in ordinary life is just a derivative of that in some ways. And so in Neoplatonic thought, they sort of took that further and they started to say, well, the, the original thought forms are love and fear. And, and these are living beings, that they're, they're, they're deities in and of themselves. And that all, all of the, the sort of sub-gods, greed, selfishness, desire, lust, but also, you know, compassion, altruism, empathy, they, these are all deities in and of themselves. And they need human beings in order to exist, in order to be perpetuated as ideals. Um, and one way of doing that was through gods who embodied the ideals Zeus and Osiris and Isis and you know various pantheon of ancient gods and another way they do that is directly as sort of almost minor gods um, battling for real estate in our minds and our bodies right and so that that sort of neoplatonic impulse is is, is in this article for sure okay. and so the Wetiko could be considered a minor god or an offshoot of a major god which is probably the same thing mm. and that it desires to spread itself and the the Western colonialists arrive on the shores of Turtle Island, and they're bringing in everything that they do, this sense of Wetiko. They are already separated from their context with the land. How far back do we think that that separation goes in the Western mindset? Because there was a time when people living in the West were also living in context with the land. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of when that disruption occurred. Yeah, this is um, a topic of great academic historical debate. I I think in the simplest sense, without getting into all the sort of uh, cultural anthropology and, uh, you know, archaeology and and all of that is to say, like, in in, in some very real ways, the Neolithic revolution and the invention of farming was the initial separation from the natural world. We went from being hunter-gatherers, which we were, you know, for 99, 98% of human history, in some ways, if we want to talk about our sort of original state or lineage or culture, it's much more that than anything that can be described uh, as the invisible hand in, in modernity, right? Yeah. And that battle for what is human nature is actually central to this whole understanding of memetics and the meme wars and the battle for ideas that is being waged in the modern world. Yeah. And so one lens on this is that, so we were hunter-gatherers primarily, and we lived in trust of the bounty of the mother. We went out and on a daily basis, there was no understanding of surplus. There didn't need to be. We were just living in such radical abundance and such knowing and dialogue that we were sort of granted, in some ways, a luxurious sustenance. Yeah. Those two words can go together. And uh, what the invention of farming did was, now you have surplus. We know that the first buildings were were ziggurats, were these pyramid structures where you would store grain at the bottom, and then there would be a sort of militia class protecting it, a layer above, and a priest class above them managing the militia through a belief system, through theology of some kind. And above the the priest class was the the sun emperor, or you know, yeah. the king or, or representative of God in some way, and and so that hierarchy gets crystallized in the city-states of Babylon and Ur and Uruk. And from then to here is not a very far leap. You know, that that the ziggurat hierarchy has essentially been crystallized within neoliberal capitalism, right? It's the it's almost identical in its structure, uh, its patriarchy, the role of of high priests, whether they're, you know, popes or economists. Yep. You know, it's 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 a it's a kind of syncretic version of the ziggurat. That's where we're at. But um, also in, in Western Europe, of course, we have the role Christianity played, yeah. sort of specifically the, the 
when Rome takes on Christianity as its imperial religion and basically goes through these sort of you know cascading waves of destruction through Europe through forced conversion and and that's probably when at scale that severance from the natural world uh, happens and then that becomes amplified through the industrial revolution and and right none of these things are discrete right they're all overlapping yeah. because the industrial revolution is of course fueled by this protestant work ethic that sort of what makes you worthy in society is how you materially contribute right and so when that mutation happens with the idea of um, a sort of western supremacy which is being buoyed up by this colonialist expeditions around the world that are bringing all this wealth back into western europe confirming their place in the world you know this sort of cycle feeds itself right and so you end up getting the the hierarchy we have now, which is uh, human exceptionalism at the top, human supremacy at the top. Western European, now you would say, you know, white supremacy, uh, uh, sort of like the base of the racialized kind of hierarchy of capitalism. And of course, in the middle, you still have the patriarchy. You still have the man is the measure of all things, you know, as the old uh, kind of enlightenment motto would go. And I would argue that that has been triangulated with otherness is the ontology of all other beings. And then capital is the measure of man. So those three kind of mimetic pillars, if you will, prop up our existing system. And it's, it's not so different from where we ended up after the Neolithic revolution. So you can draw that, that, that historical line between them for sure. Yeah. So we end up in a state where Humanity has cut itself off from any kind of energetic connection with the natural world and has a belief system where money and value are equated and community and connectivity and that sense of service to the natural world are viewed not only as worthless but actually dangerous and to be expunged. And we don't have witch burnings anymore, but we still have a lot of people being viciously destroyed if they decide to step out of line. It's not the same as being burned, but it does crush people. I would like to come back to the economics, partly because I'm in the middle of reading Jason Hickel's book and it it connects with this really mm-hmm. well. But just on a purely energetic basis, I would like to look again or to look more deeply at the energy that lies behind this. And this is my thing, and it may be only my thing, and it may be not something that resonates with you, in which case we'll probably end up cutting this bit out. But I have a felt sense when I am at my stillest and most connected that we exist now and have probably existed for quite some time in a state where there are two very large forces, and it may be the love and the fear of the Neoplatonists. Let's we could easily call them that. But there's the side that is regenerative and the side that is destructive. And that human intent can feed one or other of those sides. It is, And at any given moment, any one of us may be feeding either one of those sides. And that if we get to the point where we can realize that we have agency and that we can make a choice, then we pick one or other of those sides and we can give our life's energy in service of that. And I feel sometimes that if I look back through history, it has seemed as if one or other side has held supremacy at different times through history, but that now we're at a very fine balance point. And that that if I shift my weight very slightly one way or the other, it feels like it creates quite a big tip, which may well be my ego jumping up and down, and, and that's fine. But have you in your explorations, does this resonate with you at all, that the Wetico is an entity in and of itself, that it chooses to infect people, leaving aside the mimetic concepts, that it is an autonomous being with agency that is doing what it does very deliberately and is endeavouring to draw more, more of humanity's agency to its side? Does that make sense as a concept at all? Yeah, and and I'm really happy to to talk about this because I, you know I'm I'm a big believer in multiple simultaneous ontologies that there is a role for all of these lenses on on reality simultaneously and and actually by 
sort of amputating, you know, any one of them or saying that's not allowed to be in the public domain, Mm. even the word energy or talking about subtle realms or what have you in sort of, you know, mainstream academic discourse would ensure you wouldn't get tenure, right? That is a form of control. It's a form of domination. And so who are we to say what realities are existing simultaneously or not? Actually, the subjective reality in in some ways is, is the the dominant reality. We are all living these sort of subjective experiences, right? And so if I go in, if you're, and if we're asking the question from a subjective perspective, when I go into the, the sort of feeling state that would allow me to assess that, I would say that two things are probably happening simultaneously is that we're being, we, we are negotiating with, with these energetic forces like Wetiko that are in some ways do have their own agency and are independent to us and are bigger than us. But, but also that um, we have a karmic relationship with those entities and those beings, uh, whether epigenetically, you know, through, through ancestry, uh, through culture. And so in some ways we create them, hmm. right? And we feed them by praying at the deity of the altar, the, the altar of that deity. Whether we know it or not, we are, you know, every time we behave in a way that commodifies another human being, that sort of consumes the natural world for our own pleasure without an awareness of the consequence, we are strengthening the field of Wetiko yes. in, in, a, in, in a morphogenetic sense. And I, and I think that is true. And at the same time, do we have agency? We do have agency, but that agency is, is entangled. The idea of like pure Western agency like feels like an illusion to me, that there's no such thing as like you, you, agency in absence of like antecedents or like historical uh, trauma or, or epigenetic phenomena that like, uh, or even contextual phenomena, mm. right? That at, at any given time, matter is contorting to the subjective gaze, Right. And so, you know, Karen Barad talks about like we meet the universe halfway. There's no objective reality and there's no pure agency. Something else is happening in the quantum phenomena of we're locking atoms in superposition through our awareness of it. And and maybe Wetiko operates in a similar way. You know, it's its own being, its own entity with its own agency. It's been fed by, you know, millions of souls and uh, probably our ancestors. And we might have a predisposition towards it because it's in our it's in our lineage right. in some way, or we've made a contract with that being. And it can also be broken. We also do have the ability and the agency to say, we will change the very structure of that, that being. I think that possibility exists as well, which is kind of very relevant to being accidental gods. Right. right? Yes. And, and what you're doing at Tierra Valiente also, that's a, an active choice insofar as it is possible to do it when we swim in a world that is otherwise immersed in neoliberal capitalism it's a way of beginning to break that yeah and, and you know i think if you if you're a good student of your culture and you you understand how the dominant system and this is a good leaf from like wet to go to late stage capitalism because the two are so interrelated right it's like well how do we understand what the oxygen is or what the water we're swimming in is and in some ways you just have to look around you right it's like i think of capitalism and and many of these thought forms as like complex adaptive evolutionary systems they're, they're alive they're, they're they're like assemblages they're complexes of beings they're not just the capitalism is just not a steady state thing it's 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 the greatest frankenstein we've ever created in some ways is the market system right and for example like there there was um you know occupy wall street started in september 2011 by that christmas there was occupy wall street posters selling for 59 dollars no. in walmart <laughs> You know, with made in China frames and the whole supply chain. It's like that's how quickly the system co-ops any form of dissent. And so to be a good student of your culture, you're like, okay, well, how does this thing, how does this complex adaptive system work? Well, it tells us there's a merit system. It tells us that if you just go to the right schools and do well and, you know, you'll somehow be achieved in this culture. But, but actually the opposite is happening. It's pulling up those who best serve its logic. And what's its logic? Well, it's short-termist, it's greedy, it's extractive, it's life-destroying. And so the people who best adhere to that logic get pulled to the top of that system. And, and they're the people who are on the cover of Fortune magazines and are presidents of countries. And when you see the world that way, everything all of a sudden flips, right? You're like, oh, I see. Okay. So these are just the best ambassadors of a culture's logic. And you may think you're trying, you know, even when you see somebody who you think is trying to change that culture, 
um, like an Obama or someone like that, mm. you realize how quickly uh, they, they have to get in line, right? And that the, the, the sort of machinery of the system is about job creation and job, uh, you know, they'll call it job creation, but it's about growth. That's really what it's about. That's the logic of capital. This thing has to continue to grow. This pie has to continue to get bigger. And at the core of that, in some ways, is the wetico deity. It is the cannibalistic impulse. It's growth at all costs. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. And, and, and when, you, when, when you're dealing with that sort of a thought form, in some ways, by just spending the time in contemplation on what is the nature of this destructive force around me, um, which you know, many people in, in spiritual communities don't do, mm-hmm. right? We think our contemplation is like that inner work, but part of our contemplation is to really be students of our culture in order for our prayer to be more contextually relevant. And so that's part part of this practice is like you you sort of get a sense of what's happening in this culture, and then really, then you can be in service to countering that culture. Because I would say, like the act of gifting, for example. Is, is really a radical act, yeah. right? Because the culture is rewarding uh, greed and transactionalization and commodification. And, you know, you walk by somebody on the street and they compliment your jacket and you just take it off and give it to them. Mm. Like they, people don't know what to do with that anymore, right? Like, like there's no number exchange, there's no attribution, there's no need for anything to be returned to you. That kind of an act starts to change the very fabric in which the, the operating system functions. And so in, in that sense, I, I see what you're saying with Tierra Valiente, and I'm always like also conscious to say that like we're just in experimentation mode, right? Sure. And there's no one way to do this. There's that line from one of the, the Eagle singers, uh, but he says, call someplace paradise and kiss it goodbye. Yeah. Where you know, Every time we think we've, uh, we understand where to go, it'll find a way to, yes. uh, you know, insert itself into our, into our decision-making structure. Yes. And I think there's probably a whole other podcast, but the extent to which whether it is an innate part of human psychology or whether it is a, a fundamental break. But either way, it doesn't matter because we are where we are. And what I really want for people is that we give them agency and a sense of moving forward. Um, and I have so many notes here. So giving, definitely. I remember talking to Mickey Kashtan in an earlier podcast and her framing of Wetiko, although she doesn't call it that, her concept of the wounds of the patriarchy are separation, powerlessness, and scarcity. And her mm-hmm. response to how to begin to step over that was to give without receiving and to receive without giving, and that the second of those was by far the harder. That we are we are so mm-hmm. incultured to not being beholden to anybody, because then we might have to match in value the gift that has been given, that learning how to do that is very hard. Um, So given that we are where we are and that people listening may well, I hope, begin to sit down and really begin to look at the nature of the sea that we swim in and the world that we live in, how else can we begin to shift ourselves out of this given that not everybody yet is going to be able to form a community that exists on the land and with the land in the way that you have done. Although I I have to say we are endeavouring to do something similar here because that connection to land feels really important. But a lot of people live in the middle of a city. What else can they do that can begin to change the way that Wetico has its hold on us? It's a really good question. You know, I'd say there's there's probably like four strands into this uh, question. We, and let's try to, we'll, we'll try to put four arrows in the air at the same time and, and see if they hold. Mm-hmm. So I think one is the where we, we, we sort of came from this, which is like really being in contemplation about the impoverishments of our time. The fact that we were, we have been born into a culture that is violent in its nature is extractive that requires destruction that's patriarchal hierarchical etc etc that's been fed by this 5000 years of imperialism and genocide and um, colonialism and etc and and not to be many people see the left and they're like they're, you know the left is so overdeveloped in its ability for critique but it, it doesn't go anywhere else 
from that point. And, and, and the point of being in this contemplation is not to stay in the critique, but to cultivate enough of it so you could more accurately see shadow and light simultaneously and to see the non-dualistic nature of reality. And, and I think that is a practice and that is a pillar uh, that does need to be cultivated. And we don't really have any traditions that teach us that because clearly the dominant economic system and the secular democratic capitalist system will, will, will not encourage us to have that level of critical thinking. And, and the spiritual traditions that, that used to cultivate that, especially the mystical traditions of like Gnosticism and Sufism and uh, Kabbalah and other impulses, they, they also got... Um, institutionalized in their own ways. And so we, we have to sort of free ourselves from, from both of those aspects and almost create a, uh, I would say, like a mystical anarchist etiquette on, on how we sort of approach these issues and how we spend our time uh, in contemplation understanding that. And then while that, that's a, like a never-ending life process, I would say there's a, a, a really a second contemplation around transcending the subject-object duality if the sort of core of this culture requires the othering of all life, the othering of all beings, how do I cultivate a practice where I'm seeing that there is one consciousness taking multiple forms, including myself? Mm. And, and not to say we always can stay in that state. You know, the, the point is not to stay in that state because you have incarnated in a separate body. We have incarnated in white bodies and black bodies and brown bodies with all the historical antecedents and scars to and ancestors to prove it, but rather to cultivate empathy and compassion through the understanding of non-dual thought. Yeah. And that's not separate to this, this understanding of the political economy, that the two are sort of related in some ways. Sure. And then I'd say the third is it, you don't necessarily have to set up a community, right? Like that's one expression of it. There's people who will stay in urban environments. There's people who, who are more singular in in, in the way they wander, let's say. But to try to cultivate a relationality with other beings based on full expression and mutual respect and solidarity. So if that means gathering with a circle of people where you are just saying what your deepest fears are and what your deepest desires are for the way you would like the world to move. We, we, we don't really cultivate that skill set in, in Western culture, where we actually take responsibility for being citizens of our time. Mm. And to actively do that with other people to say that I, I have a point of view on where this is going, uh, and how I'm being implicated in this, you know, Ponzi scheme of modernity. And I think creating those spaces, whether that's permanent spaces or temporary autonomous spaces or what have you, um, is, is really important practice. You know, it could be a study group, it could be a book club, it could, but a place where there's non-compartmentalization, where you, all of you can be present and you can talk about. Yeah, we, we, we talk at, at Tierra Valiente, part of our inquiry is we, we say eros, gnosis, and polis. And Eros is not where it's not an open love community, but it's like what one of the things we say is like, and we learn this from from a community called Tamara, is that your private relationship is not private; it affects everybody. So how do we just create space where we're in an honest circle with each other, and we're 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 not you know living these atomized lives in our uh, houses, pretending that it's not affecting the entire energetic field, right? And, and, and also saying what our desires are, even sometimes for the first time to our partner in a, in a more public setting. So just creating that level of transparency and dialogue. So that's the eros. And then the, the gnosis is direct relationship to the divine in, in whatever way you, you, you do that, whether that's through plant medicine work or Taoist practices or Buddhist practices or Sufi practices or Christian practices or what have you. And, and then we, we sort of share that with each other. You know, there's almost like a, a sort of research aspect to what we do in our experiences. Mm -hmm. And we come back once a week in circle and we tell each other um, what we're exploring and why. You know, I spent eight hours on Saturday trying to communicate with this mother tree. And here's why. And, you know, and some people will think you're crazy and others. But, but just to create that space is so critical. Yeah. And then the polis is like rethinking the political economy, rethinking our relationship with each other. And so, um, so I would say, you know, yeah, everything from cooperative ownership structures to non-hierarchical direct democracy approaches to you know biomimicry and biophilia and all of these things, all of these ways of rethinking the commons 
sort of go in that category. And so just creating these groups of eros, polis, and gnosis, you know, sort of exploratory discussions around these themes. And then the fourth, I'd say, is to, to sort of cultivate a more uh, animistic approach. And in, in some ways, animism is the antidote to rationalism and materialism. But it's not a switch that just gets turned on. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's really a practice. And we have, like, a lot of the things that we, the places we're growing to as a species, we have not had practice. Like, we have not had practice in citizens' assemblies and direct democracy and group process in this way. And so we have to create our own um, areas to be practitioners in that. And it's same with, with, with sort of an animistic worldview of, being in dialogue with a living planet in a living universe and creating offerings and giving names to, to trees and beings you walk by. And, you know, th this sort of subtle practice, it, it is discursive, so it feeds upon itself. Like, th th there's a line, and I, I forgot who says it, and I may butcher it, but it's like, the, the, the natural world will speak to people who trust the natural world. Yep. Right? So when you, when you start deepening your trust, it, it can actually communicate to you more. And so it is just being in that active practice. So I'd say you know, all four of these things are critical to do at the same time. And, and there's probably another um, 10, we could say. But, but I, I think all of those, are, that, that's a good starting point to say this is a, you know, um, I don't know, not to say this is a way, but just coordinates of possibility. Yeah. And it feels very much as if they all feed into each other. So when you've got towards your contemplation of transcending the subject-object duality, then you are innately going to begin to have a more animistic approach, I imagine. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. that's that's my experience. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the idea of the eros, polis, polis and gnosis as a, as a foundation for being in relationship to oneself, to other people, and to the natural world. If we, if I can expand mm -hmm. my sense of eros and of my ability to express desires and to hear desires to everything around me, if I can share my sense of the divine with every other part of the web of life, and if I can rethink the relationships and the, the structures of hierarchy and agency with all of the rest of web of life of the web of life, then then the whole world opens up. Mm -hmm. Completely, completely. That is so very lovely. And, and maybe I could, maybe I could add just one, one thing to that to say, you know, the, the other thing that the other aspect that I think is important to introduce is just the the, the willingness to disidentify from the dominant culture right. when you start to engage in these practices, right? Because the the way this uh, complex adaptive system uh, keeps its self preservation is by inventing new thought forms like nationalism and patriotism and um, you know it'll sometimes tell you you should be grateful to have what you have mm. and the only reason you have what you have is because you're born into this culture you know the, it's, it's a very sophisticated machinery that keeps it intact right and as soon as you opt out in some way then it starts dangling the the, the old sort of lures right of well you're not going to have a job, you're not going to have status, you're not going to have respect. And it's like, we have to be willing to walk away from that. Like, we have to start seeing our lives as mythopoetic acts. It doesn't require a Wikipedia page to ratify that existence. Right. The, you know, the, the, the more we understand that our lives are these sort of creative shamanic acts we're performing on ourselves, that, that we, and we are intricate even to the system that we want to re reconfigure, yeah. let's say. I could say dismantle because it's dismantle and also reconstruct in some way. We're integral to that and we don't have to be. But everything we do to try to step outside of that is, is going to try to prevent us from doing so. And we just have to be okay with that. And not just okay with it, is actually relish in that. You know, that, that our, our, our lives are so much more uh, mythical than, than any reductive. Uh, ability to say what we do for a living you know like all of those old constructs are, are meant to keep us one-dimensional and it's also uncomfortable to start to peel those layers back yes but but the discomfort it's it's like the discomfort of birth being born is not comfortable but it's an essential part of mm -hmm. of living and Gosh, there's so much depth. There's so many things I want to go into, but just that willingness to disidentify, seeing our lives as mythopoetic acts. I love that. But in addition to that, I'm getting, I'm trying to find words around an internal energetic space, which is feeling the old order 
as having gravitational mass and the new order as trying to reach an escape velocity, in a way. And wondering, because we are endeavouring not to identify with the old order, and yet it has all the ways and the hooks and the gravitational mass of drawing us back in and singing siren songs that tell us that we are different and we are actually lifting away when in fact it's just enfolding us back in. Nonetheless, have you found another gravitational mass? What I'm struggling towards is it would be very easy for everybody who is endeavouring not to identify with the old order to do that in isolation and to become fragmented and perhaps attain escape velocity on their own. And yet, if we were able to join everybody together in the ecosystem of ecosystems that, for instance, Humanity Rising is trying to move towards, then is it possible, is it desirable to create another entity which has its own gravitational mass, which then begins to give people a sense of cohesion in an other that isn't the old Wetico. Does that make sense as a concept? And are you feeling that it's possible or is it better for us to be fragmented? Yeah, it's, you know, this is a kind of uh, itself a mythical question in some ways, mm. right? It's like, will the dominant system die by being sort of spliced, yeah. you know, as the, 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 the first, um, you know, proto-cell being became two cells, right? Mm. Or does like a multipolar approach, it will be the thing that takes it down. Um, and, and and provide so many other avenues. You know, I'm probably somewhere in between. I, I think that um, there's probably not going to be another like monolithic impulse that unites everyone around its its campfire in the same way. Because in order to sort of hold that kind of power, it required a lot of dark magic. Mm. You know, it required the, these notions of the invisible hand and the sort of distributed fascism of capitalism where everyone had to just take care of their themselves. And, and, and through doing that, it sort of like propped up this singular monolithic capitalist being. And in, in some ways, what, what's happening, and this is just my subjective sense of it, is that actually what we will share, if, if we want to call this new emerging world post-capitalism. I don't think it's going to be an ism in the same way. Like it's not going to be concocted by two smart Western Europeans in a room that write a manifesto, yep. you know, it's kind of like, it's like, it's going to be a set of values that unite us. It's going to be a set of uh, sort of insights. It's going to be a certain sensibility that, that, that basically it has to be historical in perspective to a certain extent. It has to understand like where we came from and how we got it. So, uh, unconceivably wrong, you know, and create a, a sort of a values-based vision that's based on shared ideals like altruism and solidarity and empathy and uh, non-zero-sum outcomes and non-violence. It, it's essentially a life-centric model. And that's going to have so many expressions, is, is my sense. There, there will be no one way to do it, but we'll, we'll know the others through the manner by which they approach. Right if that yes. makes sense. And so, and, and in some ways that embodiment is, is kind of what, what's happening. This is part of like, if we were to say that, you know, the four arrows in the air we talked about earlier of cultivating an understanding of what's ha happening in the dominant culture of practicing transcending subject objectuality of creating like-minded people where we're, we're, we're sort of sharing this thinking with practicing uh, animistic approaches to, to the being interacting with the more than human world. And then we also added uh, disidentifying from the dominant culture as, as a practice in and of itself, really. And then sort of this becomes the sixth sort of practice in that, which is really around um, the embodiment of these post-capitalist values and, and creating contexts in which we, we can be the best aspects of ourselves. And, and that's where community comes in, right? Um, and, and this is actually in some ways like central to the idea of what is our understanding of human nature. Like it's, it's, it almost seems that this is a secondary question, but actually it's the primary question because the reason the existing system has been so successful partly is that it's convinced us that this is the natural outcome of human beings, yeah. that we are inherently selfish, and um, 
we are, you know, red in tooth and claw and, and you leave us to our own devices and this is what we will do. But that's, we, we have 30 years of social science that says otherwise, yeah. right? That actually human beings are highly contextual. You put us in any context and we will be what that context demands. That's in some ways the human superpower. And, you know, someone with a white lab coat tells us to shock someone to death, like the Stanley Milgram experiments, we, we will shock that person to death. Yeah. Right. And and this is where the banality of evil stuff comes in. Right. And then, you know, what the Good Samaritan studies show us, like somebody who's about to give a talk on the Good Samaritan and the values of it, who are sort of even, you know, uh, imbued with those values and sort of top of mind. Uh, if just one factor, they're, they're late for their talk, they will walk by a bleeding person most of the time. Hmm. Right, we're, we're, uh, we're that contextually sensitive as beings, and so if we were hunter gatherers for ninety nine percent of our history, our dominant context was one of cooperation. It was one of altruism. It was one where we we know from you know teeth samples and bone sample density that we were eating two thousand calories a day on average. It didn't matter if you were the chief of the tribe or a lowly gatherer. And there was yes fighting amongst tribes, but w- within a tribe there was very little infighting. And there was very little hierarchy. And we were working probably 10 hours a week, right? This is what you know, Marshall Allen calls the original affluent society. Yes. So we have the ability to create these contexts for the purposes of this conversation. We're, we're calling it a post-capitalist context. But the, the contexts that we create are going to determine our ability as human beings to evolve and what direction we go into. It's not that we can singularly decide we're just going to be x or y or z and then just become that person because we are who we are through others we are beings of relationality and we are all ecosystems essentially literally like on a cellular level we are made up of communities of bacteria and microorganisms right on on a sort of uh, psycho spiritual level we are connected with every human being and more than human being that's in our kind of physical energetic uh, psychological sphere right? On a, on a temporal level, our ancestors are living through us, right? Our future selves and future generations are, are living through us. On a, on a spatial level, we are an ecology of selves, of all the beings seen and unseen that we're entangled with. And so to approach thinking about how we create the context in which those entanglements can flourish through the values of uh, of generosity, of of kindness, of empathy, of, you know, re- rewarding and creating an incentive system and a value system that actually makes us want to bring the whole of ourselves uncompartmentalized into space, that's where healing and transformation is going to happen. And there, there's no like leapfrog. I, I, I think there is a period of healing and reconciliation and grief that is required, mm. right? To be born outside of an intact culture takes its toll on us, yeah. right? And that's what 5,000 years of modernity has done. And so there is some reckoning that needs to happen. And that requires a container that requires community that requires witness. Right. And I think that's partly what we're, yeah, all trying to create in our, in our own respective ways. Yeah. And hoping that it won't take 5,000 years for us to get there. And it can't, right? It can't. It can't. We know this. Yes. Elner, I think we've totally run out of time. This has been so inspiring and yeah, it felt like we really went to places that I I was desperately wanting to go when I first read that article, so I am enormously grateful. So thank you very much. I strongly suspect there will be room for another podcast if you're ever up for it. But in the meantime, thank you for coming on to Accidental Gods. No, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing. And also just the calmness and serenity which you bring to this as a, as a, as a community leader and an organizer and a, and a writer and a thinker. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Amanda. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Ulnar for the clarity and depth of his thinking, for his critique of the Wetiko, and particularly for his vision and his lived practice of how we can step beyond it. This feels like one of those podcasts where the future is actually within reach. All we have to do is begin to live by different rules. And they're not hard rules or antithetical to where they are. They're rules that grow within us. They're part of what makes us human and they will let us all flourish. So we will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. 
Thanks also to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us there, the address is accidentalgods.life. You will get the show notes there with links to everything that we mentioned in the podcast. You'll get the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and access to the Accidental Gods membership program, which is a structured training designed to give you and anybody else the opportunity to connect with the web of life with integrity and authenticity and grounding. So if you know of anybody else who would like to be active in finding that new world where we can all flourish, where we can free ourselves from the contamination of the Wetiko, please do send them this link. In the meantime, that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.